may be boring, but his guests aren't. It's Al's Boring Podcast. Oh, hi there. Al Dukes here, and my guest today on the podcast is Steve Langford. Hi, Steve. Al, thanks for having me. Now, you uh, work at Channel 2 News now, right? Freelance. Freelance? Yes. Yes. And would you say you're more of, uh, for your career, were you more of a radio news guy or a TV news guy? Uh, Both. I've probably spent more time in television. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, radio is just, you know, a beautiful medium. Right. And how old were you when you uh, first got interested in even being in the media? Or did you, was that something that happened when you were a kid or a different time? It was probably as a, as a kid when, you know, I loved newspapers. To this day, I worship newspapers. And, um, and then, of course, the radio. You know, growing up in the 60s and 70s uh, near Detroit, which was radio gold, um, you couldn't help but be mesmerized by what was going on on the radio. You're talking like rock and roll radio. Well, there was a, the, the sort of WABC of Detroit was CKLW, and it was uh, famous and infamous. It was just, uh, you talk to anybody who grew up in the Midwest in that period, and you mention those four letters, people just get chills remembering what that was like. And it's, it's completely impossible to explain to people today right. about that. So you're a kid in Detroit? That's where you grew up? I grew up in Canada, across the river, oh, really? uh, up the road. Yeah. You're a Canadian fella. I, that's where I grew up, yes. Okay. And so you were in, but you got the Detroit stations there? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything was Detroit. The, the you know, entertainment, uh, school trips, uh, television, music, especially music. And what was Detroit like back then? Was it a scary a, place? No. Or was it? Well, I mean, Detroit's always, apparently, I've read a little bit of history. I think for, you know, two or three hundred years, it's probably been an edgy kind of place. But um, it was a a magic place. And I I don't get to go back much, but uh, to this day, I love Detroit. And I, 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 I have friends who either worked there or spent a little bit of time there. From We still talk about Detroit like it's this magic place. And apparently, I'm not the only one. The New York Times is obsessed with Detroit and and practically covers it like it's the sixth borough of, of New York City. So people get uh, people who aren't from Detroit or have never spent time in Detroit, like myself, I always just think it's it's a terrible, one terrible, giant, terrible neighborhood. But there are great parts of Detroit and nice well, suburbs of Detroit, right? I mean, there's no question that Detroit has gone through unbelievably bad times yeah but it is a magic place it, it, it and especially in the 60s and 70s it was just uh I, it's hard to describe the music the, the the spirit of detroit is uh cannot be matched so then you're a kid and you're you're thinking about that you could do a career in that uh i never thought i you know as a kid i never thought i would be part of that uh but i loved it and i guess it sort of rubbed off in a in a big way and uh, that's what I can do, that's the only thing I'm good at. So did you go to school for that sort of thing? Never. You didn't? Ever. So you're into the newspapers, you're into news, you're into rock and roll, you're into the music scene of Detroit, and, and then would you, when do you decide, I'm going to go try to get a job doing this sort of thing? So I was, um, I, I was going to school in Quebec City, where I wanted to learn to speak French, and I did. And uh, Quebec City is 99.5% French-speaking. So there, at that point, there were no English-speaking media at all. Everything was French. And there was a college radio station 
there, French speaking. So I walked in and I was just learning to speak French at that point. I walked in with this terrible accent and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to help out here. And they started to laugh. You know, who, who's this guy? He barely speaks the language. You were talking French, but just in a yes, non-French accent. Lousy accent, you know, just horrible French. And, yeah. And, I, you know, they told me, go away, and I came back. And finally, they were like, okay, let, let's have it. And, and they would put me on the air sometimes because it was funny. Right. Because I was so bad in French. And that was the first radio job I had in French. Right. And then where do you go from there? Well, then I got some attention because, you know, who is this guy? This English-speaking guy working in the French media in, in French Canada, and uh, so were you, were you looked at as like a kind of a goof type of thing. Like, well, they no. Laugh- ev- eventually, I sort of, you know, I, I was really into politics, and there was a, there were a lot of big political stories going on there. So I uh, I got uh, uh, one of the big newspapers in Montreal did a story on me, and that helped me get you know a summer job. I guess it was probably this is in the late seventies, and then I got a full-time job at uh, CBC Radio in Montreal. And then when do you come to the United States? So uh, I left Canada in 82, and uh, I went to France. I worked in Paris for three years. So your French was really good by that point. I I would get invited on French radio in in Paris, yes. So you go to uh, France to take a job there? No, I I had never been to France. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have a job there. So I moved there. Just on a whim. Yeah, I was, you know, in my 20s, and uh, I got a job not long after at NBC Radio as their radio correspondent in Paris, and I stayed for three years. And what sort of things did you cover there for NBC? There was uh, terrorism. There was uh, some politics, but the appetite in this country for French politics wasn't enormous. But there were a lot of feature stories, too. There was a lot of goofy stuff going on in Paris. Now, this was TV or radio? Radio. This was radio. And would you go out into the field for this sort of thing? Oh, yeah, a lot. I always wonder that, like, for reporters, you're going out in the dangerous areas. Well, I mean, uh, certainly, relatively speaking, Paris was not dangerous compared to what a a lot of our colleagues cover around the world. Uh, But, you know, there were demonstrations. The French uh, always had demonstrations going on marches going on and there, so there was a lot of you know fair amount of tear gas and stuff like but that. even like reporters here in the united states like reporters in new york and like you're going into areas with really zero protection do you ever you, get to stories that where they go oh steve we need you to go cover this and you're like mm, that doesn't sound like a great idea um it's not generally my instinct but i have been with crews you know television crews yeah that maybe are smarter than me and, and they'll say, you know what, we should probably back out of here. Now. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to argue with them. Right. <laughs> so you're in France. Yeah. You're doing that for a couple of years. Yeah. And then what happens after that? So I wanted to get into TV because I, uh, with all due respect, and, and, uh, and trust me, I, I went back to radio. Yeah. But my uh, feeling in the mid-80s was that I, geez, maybe I better get into television, um, that that might. That was a better, better job market? Probably, yeah. Yeah, because um, you know network radio, I think, was collapsing by that point. Um, so I got a TV job in, of all places, Cincinnati, Ohio, which turned out to be tremendous. I mean, I didn't know how to do TV; it was my first TV job, and Cincinnati was a great, great, like goofy place. What year are we talking? 1985. Okay. And so they said you're going to go cover City Hall. And I'm like, I, I barely knew where Cincinnati was, and I'm going to cover City Hall. Well, it, it turned out to be a, uh, an absolute goldmine of, of great 
stories and a lot of the characters there. And of course, you know, I didn't cover sports uh, specifically at all, but there were big sports stories uh, at that time when I was there, like the Pete Rose scandal exploded. I think it was in in the spring of 89. Right. So there was a lot of great stuff going on. You had our own, or I work with Boomer Esiason, who was the big Cincinnati Bengals quarterback back then. Exactly. Took them to a Super Bowl in uh, And I was at that Super Bowl. You were. Covering it as a news reporter for Channel 12 in Cincinnati. And, you know, I had my story all lined up. You know, the Bengals are winning. This is a great, and like 30, what, five seconds to go, something like that? Yeah. Uh, I it, don't know what it was exactly, but, yeah, we teach changed. Boomer about it a lot because Joe Montana came right down the field and uh, ruined it for everybody. Especially me uh, yeah. because uh, my story was all ready to put on the 11 o'clock news, and then I had to, like, reconfigure, and it perhaps was one of the worst stories I've ever done. Boomer tells us the story of that. I believe it was that Super Bowl that was in Miami. Yes. And he said there was, like, civil unrest in the city there, right? Which actually leads to... We're down there. We got sent from Channel 12 in Cincinnati to cover the Super Bowl. Like, not just sports reporters, but general assignment reporters. And this is back in the 80s when local television stations had money to burn. So they actually sent the ABC affiliate, which didn't even have the game, sent 28 people to Miami for 10 days to cover the Super Bowl. Like, And sending general assignment reporters like me who knew nothing about football. So we get down there, and after about three days, we have nothing left to report on. And we still got probably seven nights before the Super Bowl to provide material from Miami yeah. for Cincinnati, Ohio, for the ABC affiliate. But you're out, you're out of ideas by now. And so I, it's a Monday night before the Super Bowl, and I'm sitting, I'm frantic because my story I was working on for late didn't come through, and, and I didn't know. So I thought, you know, I, maybe I'll just watch TV, I'll listen to the radio here in my see if there's something that breaks. Well, at about 8 o'clock, I'm flipping the TV around frantically, and all of a sudden the CBS station comes on with a special report. Rioting has broken out in Overtown in Miami. I don't know where Overtown is. I've never been to Miami. So I run down the hall. I find the news director. I, I, I don't know where Overtown is, but we got to go now. Oh, okay, so they scramble me a crew. We race down 95. Traffic's all coming the other way. The exits are closed. We see fire. We figure, okay, let's go in that direction. Let's find the riot. And sure enough, it was, you know, three days of misery and mayhem. And uh, as a result, I got a job in Miami. Really? Because of that? Yes. What What was the civil unrest about? What happened, if my recollection is correct, is there was a, a, a young man riding his motorcycle through Overtown. A police officer shot and killed him. I forget what the exact circumstances were, but that sparked several nights of, of rioting in inner city Miami to the point that there were questions about whether, you know, how the Super Bowl was actually yeah. going to happen. Wow. So, but to have that instinct to go running towards the trouble, that's what I always, that's what I was kind of getting at before. Like, do you not fear going into a situation like that? Um, you do a little bit, but perhaps not enough. Yeah. I always feel like uh, that when when that was happening, as as um, terrible as the things were that were going on in these situations, there was still a respect for the media that was covering it. And I feel like during the um, L.A. riots, that changed things, where like reporters were starting to get attacked and things. That was that would that happen in uh, in like that Miami situation where where they would go after reporters and things. Well, you try to be careful. Yeah, um, you just don't go near the real trouble. Well, you, you try to go as close as possible without yeah. getting hurt. 
And then how do you get a job in Miami based on that? So the I, I had, uh, CBS was starting, had just bought a station, a television station there, uh, to create a new O&O there. And everybody wanted to work at the new CBS O&O in Miami. And yeah. I had sent a tape before that. And they were like, yeah, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then I send them that tape. They're like, come on down for an interview. Right. And I got a job there. Your season-long fantasy football team may be going strong, but you don't have to wait until week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to the test every week this season at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. With one-week fantasy, there are no season-long commitments. Got an injured player? No problem. It's like a new season every week, so you're never stuck with the same players. And get this. DraftKings is crowning a new millionaire every week this season. That means you could turn your love for football into the payday of a lifetime. Just pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. That's it. Believe me, you've never experienced football like this before. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code BORING to play for free with your first deposit in this Sunday's $1 million fantasy football contest where first place takes home a hundred grand. Enter BORING for free entry now, only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. It's Al's Boring Podcast with Al Dukes. So were you prepared at that point in your career that you were going to be one of these guys that kind of went all to all over the U.S.? Oh, yeah. And you were good total, with that? Total. Well, not just the U.S. I worked in France. Right, I worked you were in right. Canada. That's you know, true. So you were all over. I was a nomad. You were over the world. And yeah. you liked that lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I just, you know, I grew up in, you know, basically small town Canada. And uh, the one thing I was looking for was the exit sign. Right. And then when you're in these other places, like when you're in Cincinnati, were you looking to leave Cincinnati or no? Not as well. You're just always looking to move up markets. Well, you have to. Um, And I loved Cincinnati. Loved working there. Loved the place. But, you know, I had to think about the future. And so that seemed like a good idea to go to Miami. Uh, As a matter of fact, though, it... uh, it didn't... uh, The station and I didn't uh, see eye to eye on... You know, in Cincinnati, for, for some reason... You would think of Cincinnati as a very conservative place. They seem to love, you know, wild and crazy reporters. Um, there were a lot of characters from Cincinnati. I mean, Jerry Springer right. was an anchorman in Cincinnati. So they seem to love characters from out of town and let them do their thing. I get to Miami, to the CBS O&O, and they were in no mood for my shenanigans. Yeah, they wanted a straight-laced yes. reporter. Exactly. So how long does that last there, doing well, that? Well, I, I knew two weeks in to working there that uh, this was not going to work for me, but I actually lasted like eight months. Yeah. And they fired me. Oh, they did? Yes, but I, I was begging to be fired. And then where do you go from there? So I, for visa reasons, because I still wasn't... Uh, You're still a, Canadian. A, I, yeah, I still wasn't a, a legal resident, a, a permanent resident of this country. I had to go back and work in Montreal for a year and a half. And that was a whole new, you know, drama. What was dramatic about that? Well, because A, I didn't want to be there, and... <laughs> I mean, it's a nice place, but it's cold, and, and I'd left there, and I really had no intention of going back. But, and I was really a fish out of water. I was sort of the ugly American, you know, working on Canadian television. And, uh, but then I, I did some 
big stories there and um, got out. Where do you go from there? Back to the U.S.? You you would love this. I went to, to a current affair. Oh, really? Yes. Which was based out of where at the New time? York. And who was hosting? Uh, Maury had, was just leaving, and so it was Maureen O'Boyle who was the anchor. And what type of stories were they doing at that time? A current affair? Yeah. Well, uh, it was, you know. That was it, like the TMZ of its day? Oh, the, the, the TMZ is vanilla compared really? to a current Oh, yeah, TMZ is, is nothing compared to. A current affair was just absolutely. I remember I called my mother to say I got a job at, at a current affair. And she said, no, I've never heard of this. So a couple days later, I call her back. She says, I found it in the TV guy. What kind of a show is that? <laughs> what did she see? Like, what was well, the you know, uh, descriptions? It was, every, it was all sorts of crime and craziness and and strippers, uh, you know. And you name. I mean, it was it was mayhem. But the ratings were through the roof. And did you question going there? Oh, not at all. No, even though <laughs> no. you had like kind of a straight laced oh, no. news background. Yeah, but I wasn't so straight laced yeah. because I liked I liked to be colorful in terms of my reporting it, it it's always been my feeling that there is no excuse for boring the audience so you would go uh you would be on air on on yeah. camera on a current affair yes you were one of the reporters that would go out and do sorts, sorts yes. of things what were some of the biggest things or the most memorable things you remember from there oh you know part of it was in the writing um and and i went to hard copy after that um, Who was hosting then? That was uh, there was a, a co-anchor team who'd been there forever: Barry Nolan and uh, Terry Murphy. And it was just uh, the, the the thing about tabloid television was the freedom to write. Like I, I was chasing uh, Jack Kevorkian around Michigan, and he was in a courtroom, and and my opening line was something about Motown's Doctor Jack and his Grateful Dead. <laughs> so you prefer? Did you prefer that to the hard news? Well, I don't mind hard news. I love hard news. But yeah. hard news, I believe, has to be delivered and has to be presented in a way that you're not reading the phone book, that you're not boring the crap out of out of your audience. They, yeah. they need to be engaged, and you need to, you know, even if you're at a dinner uh, party or something, are you the guy at the end of the table who's just moaning on about something, or are you commanding attention about some great story? That's right. what it's all about. And that that uh, current affair and hard copy, those were syndicated shows, yes. right? They yes. were they were on all over the country, but at different times on different stations, right. and they and had all that massive sort of ratings. Massive ratings. Massive. So, so you would do things uh, that would air that same day, or were or were they things that you would put together? Both. Both. Uh, sometimes they were day of air. Sometimes you'd go off and and do you know, for example, when. Uh, Labor Day in 1997, I'm hitting golf balls. I'm not a golfer at all, but I was hitting golf balls in L.A. with a buddy of mine, and I get a page, and they're like, you need to get to the airport. Now you're going to Paris because Diana just got in a car wreck. Oh, wow. And so, so you go to cover that. Yeah, and because I'd worked in Paris, and I knew how to speak French, and, you know, the whole deal. And that was for hard copy or yes, current affairs? Hard, hard copy. Hard copy. So how long do you stay at those two places? I was there till hard copy closed down in 99, and that was that. So I wonder, like you mentioned, they had massive ratings. So how how does that go bad where they closed well, down? They made a lot of enemies, and uh, they weren't perhaps compatible with the movie studios that owned them. For example, if uh, you know George Clooney, to cite an infamous example, uh, if he's not happy with how he's being portrayed on these wild tabloid shows, he goes to the suits at the movie studio that that. They run the tabloid TV shows on the side, and he says, listen, guys, uh, 
you know, you guys are calling me names. You're making fun of me. You know, why should I make a movie with you? And at some point, the big companies, the movie studios, they say, you know what? We really don't. We can't do movies and have these shows. Right. That's the problem, I guess, when only a handful of companies own everything. Right. You know, then then they kind of, you know, kind of run into trouble for each other. Right. Yeah. So uh, where do you go from there, from the hard copy and uh, a current affair? So I was back here in New York, and I worked uh, I worked at MSNBC, which was just, I mean. Boring. You know, yeah, I mean, they, you know, me and MSNBC, that was, I wasn't on the air there. I was just a producer. Uh, but it, it was oil and water. I yeah. mean, they, they, did, they wanted no part of what I do. <laughs> So you seem to, you know that though, you knew that kind of immediately, just like you did in Miami? Yeah, I mean, I needed a job. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know. So when you're at those jobs, you're always looking for your next, the oh, one you want to do. Desperately. And when and and what is that while you're at MSNBC? Well, so uh, I got out of there with, um, you know, you mentioned TMZ. Harvey Levin ran a show back then called Celebrity Justice. And so that was a natural for me. So I, I was the New York bureau chief of that. But that show didn't last. And so where did I go? I went to Court TV. And, oh, then I went to The Insider, which was back sort of home at, you know, Paramount. And um, The Insider, that was more like Entertainment Tonight? Yeah, a little like, bit. With Yeah. It wasn't like a hard copy no. and uh, a it wasn't either. It wasn't so hard-edged. Yeah. No. And then did you do uh, any more news radio along the way? So... Uh, after a time at the Insider, and, and frankly, they, they had me commuting to L.A. every week. And so, you know, after seven months, I couldn't take that anymore. Yeah. You know, flying out on Monday morning to L.A. and coming back Friday night. Um, I, I Actually, A Current Affair did a remake, which was a, a disaster. So that I did that, and that, that didn't last long. But then I read in the newspaper one day that Howard Stern is moving to satellite, and he wants to start a news department. I'm like, wait a minute, what What on earth? Is... I was fascinated by the idea, and I emailed some people, and all of a sudden I got a phone call, can you come in on a Monday morning? And that lasted for six years. So you knew about Howard Stern prior to that? Oh, yeah, I was a big fan. So you were listening on K-Rock? Yes. And then uh, he goes to satellite radio, and uh, so someone just writes up a thing, and he's looking for a news department? He, he actually wanted to start a, a news department uh, to run in between, in, in the breaks, uh, when his show was being rebroadcast through, throughout the day. Right. And he wanted to start this up before he started there. Because yes. he was going to start in January of 06. Exactly. And so we started in October of 05. To get things going and get excited about that. It was uh, So what was that like when you went to, who'd you even meet with over there? Did you get to meet, did you meet with Howard? No, not at all. Not, no. Didn't meet him till. in fact, there, there was this great, um, there it was this great moment early on. You know, we'd been there a few days. And all of a sudden, Howard, who we had not met, comes walking in with Ed Bradley. And there's a two-camera shoot for 60 minutes. And they just come barreling into this newsroom that we just started. And <laughs> I don't, can I, how much can I? I mean, it's you not, uh, you know, in terms of uh, content. Uh, oh, yeah, whatever you like. Yeah. So... Howard walks in, and, and Howard says to Ed Bradley, he says, Ed, listen, this is my news department. We just started this. It's exciting, and we're covering all sorts of things. 
well, uh, what, uh, what, what exactly, what, what are you covering? Like, well, for example, I think they're doing stories on, we have on another channel, we're doing an experiment because I'm not allowed to be on satellite yet. We're doing an experiment from uh, somebody's apartment in Queens where uh, we're feeding this large man as much food as we can, and we want to see over 24 hours, we're going to collect, <laughs> we're going to collect what he produces, and we're going to weigh it, and uh, we're taking bets on it. Right. So uh, this Ed, is to Ed Bradley. This is to Ed Bradley, and Ed Bradley, with the two cameras rolling, says, "Well, uh, what exactly is so funny about that?" At which point we're in tears, trying not to make noise. Even the camera guys, I can see the cameras are shaking. They're laughing so hard. Uh, that did not make it on 60 Minutes. But. That was a high pitch Eric, right? Exactly. They were feeding a high pitch Eric to see how much his bowel movements would weigh. It was priceless. Yeah. And did you, when you were over there doing that, at any point were you like, what am I doing over here? No, because I, I never had that sensation. Yeah. Because, frankly, in the news business, every day, you know, whether you're covering for the New York Times or the New York Post or... All sorts of news outlets. You cover the, the craziest things sometimes. And sometimes it's not news at all. So for me to go to the Stern operation and cover crazy stuff there, what ultimately is the difference? Right. So the philosophy there was they were going to cover uh, people and things going on with the show the same way that, that, a, that a news organization would co cover legitimate news. Right. Now, it would... The, the focus would always be on stuff coming out of the show. So we, I remember that when, when the, the terrible, you know, the, the plane landed on the Hudson, that was a classic case of we're sitting there going, do we cover that? I mean, and I'm thinking the mandate, and there is no stern connection whatsoever. So we decided not, not to cover it. Right. But if somebody had uh, been involved that was right. like a uh, if somebody was on, or... Exactly, or if, if somebody on the show had been on the plane or had a relative on the plane or something like that, we would have been all over it. Then you'd be on it. And how, how big was this news department when it first started? Well, at first it was a lot of people because, yeah. uh, as you mentioned, Howard was not at Sirius yet. So we had to fill all that time on satellite radio. So I, we probably had 25 people in the newsroom. And who was in charge of that? Um, at first, well, there, there was Walter Sabo, there was Tim Sabian, and the news director was a woman named Liz Aiello, who really didn't, she had come from Channel 7, and she didn't know a lot about Howard Stern, but she was really smart, and she, she knew how to, you know, adapt, and, and she was terrific. You probably have a terrible mattress that's many years old, it's keeping you up at night. It's hurting your back. But you also don't want to spend like 1500 bucks on a new mattress. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly onto you, the consumer. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. Statistically, lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right mattress for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality, you spend a third of your life on. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price. They have just the right sink, just the right bounce. They've got two technologies working, latex foam and memory foam. 
both come together for better nights and brighter days. Oh, and these Casper mattresses are made in America. Check out the prices here. $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to industry averages, it's an outstanding price point. I have a special offer for boring podcast listeners. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash boring. And then when you get there, you use promo code boring. Terms and conditions apply. Check it out, casper.com slash boring. It's Al's Boring Podcast with Al Dukes. And what were your favorite things to cover while you were there for six years? Like, what were your most memorable things? There were a lot of great things. And there were, believe it or not, we actually covered very, very serious subjects that came out of the Stern Show. Um, there was, a, you know, as you probably know of, uh, there was a young man named Kenneth Keith Callenbach. Oh, yeah. He used to blow smoke out of his eyes on the Channel 9 show. He was a crazy character who was associated with the, with the Stern Show. And one morning, just before I was going to go in and do the headlines on the live Stern show, I got a call saying that he died in a, in a prison, in a, in a jail. And there was just something that struck me about it. It, it. Like, what on earth happened? You know, the guy was 39 years old, and he was in on a parole violation or something, probation violation, and um, he died. And I began to investigate what was going on here and what kind of prison this was, and then did a series of stories over a couple of years about private prisons in America. This is where he was. And there was this enormous scandal about what most people aren't aware, that these prisons, that that (laughs) it's a long story, but it what goes on with the, you know, the politicians who get contributions from the companies that run the, the private prisons, and then they pass the law so that there are more prisoners to feed the private prisons, and then the health care and the safety of the—it's just a disaster. Yeah, so that was a very serious issue that Which came I up. covered over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was a long series, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that went on for a long time. Um, who did you like uh, working with most of the uh, whack packers that you would have to deal with? Well, there were there were a lot of fun. I mean, they were crazy, and, they, and their personal stories were often very, uh, you know, sad and, yeah. and, and difficult. But um, there were, I mean, Riley Martin always made me laugh. Uh, Bigfoot was off the charts. Uh, High Pitch Eric was just a constant source of stories. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, cover, I covered two of High Pitch Eric's evictions two <laughs> thrown out of his place in new york oh i mean the one in queens the, the time that i remember watching the uh, super go into the into the apartment that hypochoric had just been thrown out of and he put a mask on and i said what are you doing he says watch he opens the door and i mean you, you couldn't the stench was from eric's apartment yes and were you there when howard tv was still a thing yes and then were you there when that got dissolved I had already left. You had already already left. And now it seems like the news department's really just one guy there. I'm now. not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure they even exist. Yeah. Uh, the um yeah, maybe not even fully exist. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I, I guess they don't need that. I guess the show thing has anymore. changed and and you know, that was my sense in yeah, leaving that it was time to move on. What sort of things did you did you start looking at any particular time where it was like, it's time to go? After about five years, because um, I did a lot of great stories there. I mean, I, re- I enjoyed it a yeah. lot. 
I did great stories. And, um, but after five years, you could kind of sense that the, the focus of the show was changing. And so it, it was time to move on. Yeah, and you, because uh, I know I, I was Googling you just to, to sort of see your, your, your career path and all that stuff, and it, it had, a, a bunch of things had come up. Now, they were written from, you know, Stern Show fans, that, that there was some type of weird way that you left or Howard didn't know you were no, leaving. Or... No, well, that, you know, you can't always believe what you hear on the radio or, right. or read in the newspaper. And so that, uh, you know, I gave my notice. I gave a two-week notice. Well, they happened to be on vacation the first week. And so, you know, the second week, I guess I would go in and do my thing and, you know, thank you very much and all that. Well, they were, no, 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 you don't have to stay around for the second week. And then, and <laughs> so they go on gone. the radio and they go, wait a minute, what happened to Steve Langford? He just left. No, 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 guys, you told me to leave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. One of the things, like, I, I, you know, I grew up, I love the Stern Show. I still oh, listen to it. But it seems like things now... I guess the perception as a listener used to be everything was talked about. And that's the way I felt as a listener. Like, I'm getting insight on everything. And now, I don't know if it's because we have more access to information with Twitter and everyone's got a blog and a podcast, that there's certain things that kind of don't get addressed. So, like, the the TV disappeared and it really wasn't addressed. Then slowly news department people left and that wasn't addressed. And then Tim Sabian was gone one day and that wasn't addressed. You know, I was like, I really, what, like, what is going on over here? Then I heard they ha- they have they hired uh, like an efficiency, a woman who's like an efficiency expert, and then that's like those things are disappearing. But I just wish they were talked about more. And I don't know like, if you can well, do that or can't do that because I like, have no idea because uh, you know I left uh, yeah. four four years ago. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I I'm not time. really up to speed at all with what's going on. But yeah. I, you know, as a news reporter especially you want to report what's going on. And that seemed to be the idea of Howard 100 news was yeah. to cover what's Everything. going on. And, and if you're going to report the news, report what's happening, tell the truth. Um, though I remember early on Howard had was just coming over to, to Sirius and it may have been a week before he went on the air in January of uh, 2006 and he had a big meeting upstairs. I remember the first meeting at Sirius of the entire staff of the Stern Show. And um, I was in there as the news reporter covering the meeting. Right, because you're going to do a report on it. Right. And I'm sitting at the table. And uh, Howard, the first thing he says is, um, hmm, Steve, uh, Steve, you're going to have to leave. I was like, okay. So I did an entire story about, you know, <laughs> Howard's turn of all people, throughout the news reporter, <laughs> right. what kind of Soviet news is this? And I remember a couple of things coming up on the air where it was like, you know, you were and the rest of the news team covering, you know, things Robin was doing off the air and Howard and Fred. And then are you prying into their private life and do they want that on the air? Like, how did you judge that? Well, I, I, if things happened and, you know, unless a, a story was going to get somebody fired or in you know, unjustly punished. Um, yeah. the, the fact was, the idea was you cover the stories. And you would think that they, of all people, would have thick skins, but that was not always the case. Yeah. So then did you have some good stories that got squashed? Um, toward the end, there were a couple. But generally speaking, um, you know, Howard was very good about 
allowing us to go on the air. And then, of course, I would have to fight it out because going on and doing the headlines where we would break some of these stories, and some right. of them were very <laughs> embarrassing to the people right there in the studio on the show, um, it was like delivering news headlines to a firing squad. Right. Because they would just go at you right away. I mean, and, and I, one day I'm on there doing the headlines live, and uh, Robin Quivers says live, she says, Howard, this, this Steve Langford doing the news, he's just, he's terrible. He's obvious, you know, this news is just a... And I, I leaned into the microphone on live on the air, and I go, Howard, it's pretty interesting taking uh, news criticism from a woman whose idea of reporting is reading a newspaper out loud into <laughs> a microphone. How'd that go over? Well, I think I think it, she, uh, you know, we went back and forth, and Howard said something about, oh, we're you know, having a dispute here in the studio between two reporters. And I said, Howard, there's only one reporter in this studio. And she did not like that. No, no. Uh, would stuff carry on off the air? Well, it's where it funny. Be uncomfortable. You, 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 everybody more or less got along, but then, you know, a week later or a month later on the air, you know, something would happen where clearly the resentment was still there. Right. And then when you were starting to think about that you were going to leave, that it was maybe didn't have a great future there, what sort of opportunities were you looking at and where did you go from there? Uh, I was looking at anything. Um, and what came up was, uh, here in New York City, they were going to start an FM news operation to compete with uh, the all-news radio stations here. Right. And uh, that was on 101.9. Exactly. And it was a great idea. And uh, unfortunately, the execution was terrible. What do you think was went wrong with it? Uh, well, can you compete against 1010 wins and 880? Like, I, I believe like the, you can. You can. I believe you can if you do it properly, but it, it was executed badly, uh, and it just collapsed. Now, I remember... I, I thought the idea of that that all-news FM station on 101.9 was supposed to be aimed at women. Well, I think that I think that was a, initially some sort of stunt or something oh, to maybe. get attention, which uh, maybe I, I don't think people. worked. <laughs> yeah, it certainly didn't seem to work. If you're going to do news, just do it for everybody. Don't say we're going to cover just for—I mean, that's crazy. And what would you do different than what we already have going on at the two news stations here? Like, what, uh, what do you think— could have worked over there. I think you need more personality. I think you need more color. I think you need more depth. Um, yeah. So that lasted how long? About a year. A year. And, and I, I had fun. I mean, I got away with murder on there. How so? Uh, for some reason, and I know this doesn't sound sexy, but I, you know, I go from covering the Wack Pack and Howard and the boys to I, I started picking up on the Port Authority. This is right when they hiked the tolls to the moon. And I started to look into this whole thing, and it was a minefield of, <laughs> I, I, you know, it just, the stuff that goes on at the Port Authority is worthy of a complete team of investigators. It seems like that uh, the all-news format or these, these all-talk formats, they're very expensive to run, right? If oh, you, yes. To get the right people, the right personalities, you have yes. to pay them, and that stuff starts to get expensive over time. And if the ratings don't come right away, everyone starts to panic. Right, because I'm sure when 1010 Wins started, and by the way, I mean, 1010 Wins is an absolute gem of a radio station. I mean, to this day, whoever invented that 20-minute format. Yeah, 22 minutes. It's spectacular. Yeah. And WCBS Radio is, is, is a great, great radio station as well. But... um. I forget where I was going with this, but uh, 
they're saying what you might be able to do differently on uh, the FM. You, you mentioned personalities, and I was saying how it was uh, it's an expensive format to run if you don't get ratings right away. It is, uh, but I think uh, I was leaning you towards uh, like you were saying, maybe ten ten wins in the beginning. Oh, ten ten wins didn't get is, a lot uh, of ratings. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they, they at the beginnings, uh, you know, they, they, I remember talking to Stan Brooks about about this. You know what? What was the deal? You were the news director, Stan, back in 1965 when it was a rock and roll station, and they pull you into a room and say, uh, "Stan, listen, uh, you can't say a word, but uh, you know, in May we're going to go all news." And Stan says, "All news? What? What's all news? <laughs> what are you talking about?" So yeah, at the beginning, I mean, I'm sure they weren't getting huge ratings. They had more patience yeah. back then. Yeah, no patience now. You're in. If you don't get ratings right away, they they want it out. I worked over at that 1027 Blink FM when that started. You remember that? I'm trying to remember. That was supposed to be like an enter, like an almost like an entertainment tonight for the radio type of thing. And that would be expensive. Very expensive. That did not work either. So where do you go then? When when you were when you were looking to leave Howard's uh, Howard 100, when you would go uh, and talk to people about jobs, were they weary of? your background because they may have thought, well, that's not real news. And if you have gained, um, people know you now from Howard. So if they hear your name and your voice on our news station, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, what we call real news. And we don't think that was real news. Did you run into that at all? Well, I I don't think I can specifically point at, uh, that experience uh, and that notoriety, of having worked with Howard. The fact is, I think throughout my career, most of my career, people have looked at my resume and go, Oh my God, you know, what, <laughs> what is this? Is it a, is it a resume or a rap sheet? <laughs> right. Cause you went from like news stations to tabloids, tabloids to news, to Howard, to yeah, news. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. If you want a dull reporter, I'm not your guy. Uh, if you want somebody who's going to, um, going to report the news very colorfully and uh, demand attention, then, yeah, I'm your guy. And what did you do after that 101.9 uh, went so, away? So then I called, uh, I, I got um, got in to see the people at Channel 2. And uh, they were like, yeah, come on, over, give it a try. And what sort of stories do you cover for them? So uh, a fair amount of crime. Yeah. Um, there's always, uh, you know, disasters. Um, there's all, I, I they... Put me on a lot of, uh, you know, squatter stories and, uh, you know, s- certain injustices yeah. going on. Injustices. Do uh, do kids still want to be news reporters? I think so. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure, but I, that's been my sense, kind of. And, of course, every time, I, I think, uh, judging from your question, I think every time I hear that, you know, somebody says, oh, they want to go into news reporting, <laughs> you know, I grab them right away and say, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> bad idea. Why is that a bad idea, you think? Well, it's just, uh, you know, the, the business is changing. I mean, you know, most of the people my age, I think, may say the business is going down the drain. It's not. It's just there's a massive revolution going on in terms of media. And um, it's it's difficult to... To, to make a living in in the old way. And so everybody has to find their new way to make a living. And so if, if a young person wanting to become a reporter has an enormous appetite for risk, great. Uh, now's the time to be a reporter. Yeah, you mentioned you love newspapers still to this day. Are, are we getting to a point where those are going to disappear on us? I certainly hope not. I mean, 
Because if this thing, if the news, New York Times ever died, I would be the guy out on the street wailing, and you would get video of me. Yeah, it's not the same looking online or on your phone. Oh, God, it's, I hate news. it. I like this piece of paper yeah. in, in my hand. How would the Daily News let go of a ton of people? It's terrible. Yeah. I don't but know, like, how are they not, how how are these newspapers not surviving? Like, what's happening to them? Their circulation is down, people are not buying the paper? It's a vicious circle. Um, you know, a lot of the classified advertising, a lot of the big display advertising over, you know, the past decades as it disappeared. Yeah. And so the economics of running a newspaper, and newspapers are a very expensive thing to run. I mean, you, you go out on a story and... They've got like two and three reporters. They got photographers, and and they do a great job. But that's expensive. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play. It. It's Al's boring podcast. What about our local news? Is it too much just people getting killed and that sort of thing? Well, it's like sometimes when you turn the news on, it's like just death, death, terrible things. It is. I mean, you know, the local news could uh, go more in depth. There's no question. Yeah. Did you see that movie with uh, the Hex's name? The actor where he's playing a guy who would, uh, he was like a freelance TV guy. He was, he, he had his own camera. I didn't see it. I heard about That's it. Called, I, yeah, it was it. I what, did a uh, terrible job with this. It's called, I know which one. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, I don't know what that guy. That actor. Like, basically, name is. he was the stringer. He, he was yeah, the, he was a stringer. So he would go out looking for to be the first on the scene of an accident or a fire, so that he could. I know these guys. Like, there, yeah, there's they, a guy these are guys I know that here, exist here in New York, and he does a terrific job. I mean, it's. So they follow the police scanners. They, as they should. When they hear something terrible, they get to it first. And they get the first video. They and video, then they sell they it to sell the it. news. Yeah. Because you know, a lot of times, by the time everybody else gets to the scene, there's 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 no pictures left. Right. Yeah, well, yeah when this guy in the movie would show up late, he'd be pissed because right. somebody else got it. And then right. in one of the things, he started like creating news so he yeah, could well. film it. <laughs> that's a whole you know, that's, uh... that's a whole other thing. Yeah, that's, uh, you know. Would you like to work at like a 10-10 wins, 880 type of thing, or you're more like TV these days? I, I like them both. Yeah. I do. I mean, radio is uh, quicker and simpler. Um, and also, uh, a guy I worked for a long time ago, I think, said radio is news, TV is logistics. How so? What do well, you Because, mean? you know, TV, you got you got the van, you got the camera guy, you got to get out the stuff, you got to feed it. Back, you know, radio is just, you know, you get it on your phone and away you go. You're, and, you're live. And where were you uh, working with when 9-11, all, all that stuff went down? So I was at MSNBC, so I, I, I did not cover 9-11. You did I, not? No. What were they doing, MSNBC, yeah, I mean, with that? Exactly. They weren't, um, all, they weren't all over no, it? No, they were, but it just, it was such a big bureaucratic place. It yeah. Just, I, you know, talk about logistics. I mean, right. It was like moving on an ocean liner. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on now with us? Uh, so when you say you're a freelance with CBS, what does that mean for uh, as far as like when people hear that? What do they what does that mean for you? So you're not an employee of theirs, right. but they hire you to do particular stories. Yes. So, I, I, wor I work there a lot. You work there a lot. So yeah. how many things do you get to cover a week? Well, you know, three or four or five days, depending on the week. Um, 
and uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff. There's always, you know, the beast needs to be fed. Yes. And uh, so there's always stuff to cover. Yeah, people always say like, uh, you know, I, I work in sports. They go, well, what if, what if uh, nothing happens tonight? What if nothing goes on? And I think the same thing. Like the newspapers, the blogs, they have to put something in there. You know what I mean? So there's always going to be something. Yeah, that uh, gets feeds. So the you'd, beast. you'd be amazed sometimes on the weekends. Um, on, you know, in local news in New York, you 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 shake your head sometimes. Why? Because there's know, not significant stuff. Or or there's not significant uh, imagination in terms of. Because there's always this is New York City. I mean, there's yeah. always something going on here, in a major way. Yeah, I would say so. And if uh, when's the last time you spoke with the Howard Stern crew? Um, I spoke to Gary a few weeks ago, briefly, and uh, talked to Ronnie too. Everyone uh, always has nice things to say about Gary. Gary is the greatest. Like, Gary is one of the nice great guy. human beings on earth. Yeah, I mean, he just and he also understood what we do as reporters and he was always very helpful and very forthcoming yeah so yeah he was he was an absolute joy to work with and ronnie the limo driver for me remains one of the funniest human beings on this (laughs) planet is that just a well-oiled machine now over there like everyone kind of does their own thing and it just comes together what do you mean like like do they get together and have meetings where howard fred everyone's in these meetings or is it just like everyone knows their role and it just kind of all comes together on the air without it may have changed, but when I was there, it was more sort of the well-oiled machine where it would just happen. I mean, obviously, there was a staff preparing stuff, yeah. and but, but you know, you had the bullpen there, which, you know, the back room where they would they would watch what's going on. And, the rea- you know, like, for example, if somebody's on the air, the staff is texting Howard so that he sees in front of his screen that, you know, so-and-so is lying to you. The person you're talking to right now is, in fact, <laughs> da 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 you know, and then Howard would right away right. go at him. And what does Benji do exactly? When somebody Benji. says, like, they're a writer, I always wonder that. Like, I remember listening when Jackie was on the show, and you can tell which which lines Jackie fed Howard because Jackie would laugh at those those <laughs> lines, right. you know, really loud in the back, a big whoop. Uh, and then that kind of changed with Artie, where he sort of became more of an on air role. But I always wonder, like they say, Benji's a writer, like what that means for that show. So it, it, I actually sat beside Benji one morning for an hour in in the studio, and Benji had his place. And he had a camera above a stack of paper. So he would scribble something on there that Howard could see on his monitor. And so Howard could use it. And Benji was just constantly scribbling away this stuff. Now, Benji is a character and, and a piece of work. And, and frankly, you know, at times, just somebody you do not want to be around ever but he's also a very funny individual, a, a madman. Yeah. Uh, so he could, uh, he, you know, he sat there for hours writing this material for Howard, who knows how much of it was, was used, but also Benji was very entertaining in a, in a, in a sick way uh, on the air, too. Yeah. That's what the, the Jackie system used to be, was that Howard had like a black and white monitor that was a camera on Jackie's that stack of papers and black Sharpie markers. Right. You know, cause I guess typing it would be too, would take too long. You scribble and you'd have to know each other's handwriting, I guess. 
And we even covered, you know, in the news department, we covered Jackie post the Stern show. Right. And that was fascinating, too. Yeah, as to why he left and then what he was doing after that. And his struggles yeah. to, you know, I mean, this was a guy who was on top of the world and he left. And um, yeah, I don't hear much about him anymore. Right. But he was, uh, I, I, I was always fascinated by him. And in a, in a, a lot of ways I was very, um, I was rooting for him, you know, to make a comeback. Right. But, he, you know, he was not always pleased with my reporting. And, and frankly, you know, there were times, that, you know, I come from that tab tabloid background. So I, you know, I'm doing a story about his attempts to come back at one point, and, and the last line of the piece was, death of a joke man. <laughs> well, he was doing that show on there for a little while. He's not Jackie's doing that anymore? Hunt. I, I think that's I, I think that's gone as well. Right. Yeah. Right. I always wonder with Jackie, like, weren't those jokes just jokes? Like, did he didn't write those jokes. They were jokes from the dirty joke book that we all had growing up. Like, how do you get to do those? I mean, he claims to have come up with a lot of these lines. Uh, yeah. That, that, you know, maybe even sold to Rodney Dangerfield. or Right, you know. right. It would be a writer. Yeah. That was my favorite Stern era, the Jackie, Billy West, right. that whole thing. But I guess your favorite era is the one that, you know, you grew up with so if that's where i did my growing up and that of course it's like with music everyone loves the music from their high school you know like right that and then you stop listening to new music for the most part and you love just what you loved when you were a kid but it even was like that way with that with the stern show for even me. when howard had that show on channel nine oh yeah that show was unbelievably yeah. good i just watched the great documentary cnn did on morton downey jr oh my god that was really terrific. I loved that guy. I, Morton, I interviewed Morton Downey before he died. And I think I was probably the only reporter to ever face him. You know, he's probably getting a lot of scorn from, from right. reporters. And I, I just looked at him and I said, you were the greatest. <laughs> and that was funny. That was just like a local, like done in New in uh, uh, Secaucus, New Jersey. You know, I know it kind of went around the country, but that was, I, I would love, I wonder why they don't do something like that again today where you get a guy who's debating the issues and just in your face oh i know i uh, i don't get it i think you know the media we think we have a lot of choice now and we do but a lot of it's just vanilla yeah i just wonder how how even something like that like i was asking you about hard copy and a current affair when they were so wildly popular in the ratings how does that go away same with morton downey jr like that guy was killing it and then i guess he just goes a little the ego and it goes a little too far and then they're 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 you know his life collapsed around them i guess that right guy. but but to, to continue with what you're saying why because morton downey went away and uh, the tabloid shows went away why why does why, why do the people in charge of the media say okay well we can't do anything like that anymore yeah. you know everything everything has to be very serious and and dull Right. What's the point of that? No, I don't know. Nobody wants dull. And we certainly have enough channels yeah. to put something interesting on. I mean, the guy in his car listening to the radio or the guy at home watching the local the news, they, they want something to, to make them go, hey, Martha, what, what, what is that? <laughs> right. And we don't have that anymore. No. For the most part. No. Well, Steve... Thank you for being on my podcast. This is what we do now, podcasts. And people listen to podcasts, maybe. But there's no way to weed out good podcasts and bad podcasts. You know what I mean? Like, anyone right. could put a podcast up. Right. I'm lucky I have this place that will promote it for me so I can stand out a little bit. That's great. 
that's the future Steve podcast. Let's get a Steve Langford podcast going. What about that? Yeah, you got me. I uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm kind of like uh, your old guy, school. I do one thing, which is, you know, I go out and cover a story. Right. And then I and then I bring it back and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, I, I mean, I you know, I sometimes kid that my stories are bombast, bile, bullshit, and baloney, but it, the story has to be exciting. You know, you have to come back from what you covered, right? And you have to go listen to this, right? And that's that's all I know how to do. I think you nailed it right there. I like that. What was it? Bombastic. Well, I mean, I'm exaggerating because I bullshit. I don't go bullshit, for it because right. I, I tell I'm, I'm obsessed about telling the truth right i i will never be for better or worse brian williams right how about that that's an amazing story and he's back right yeah but you don't hear much about him no he's off the radar now i just don't get it i like that lester holt i do but he's dull a little dull yeah i mean i don't get dull walter cronkite was not dull what about tom brokaw i always found him him dull you found him dull. what dan rather not so dull but not a great anchor, but a great newsman. Uh, but, but you know, people think back and they think maybe Walter Cronkite, for the people who know who Walter Cronkite was, he was not dull. He was a spectacular showman. Yeah. In addition to being a, a magnificent newsman. David Brinkley was, was practically the Daily Show back in the 60s. I mean, he was on fire. So, you know, you don't have to, 60 Minutes is at least until probably the past few years, was this, uh, is a, a, a tremendous success story based on doing serious news but making it very appealing and entertaining. Why not? You like these Dateline and 2020 shows? I've never liked Dateline at all. Really? Uh, 2020 used to be a tremendous show. I mean, it used to be an impeccable show. I don't think it is anymore. Yeah, it's mostly now like either a husband or wife killed the other one. Like yeah. it's I mean, like the wife killed the husband mysteriously. They're all trying to imitate 48 hour 48 hours which is the gold standard of that kind of show. Yeah. I'm still locked in on that and even though I know like I know it's going to be the wife who killed the husband and I know it's going to be the husband who killed the wife and yet I still will hang in there if it's done well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it can be Good stuff. I like if it's a love triangle, <laughs> then I'm then I'm more and more. I'll hang around more and be more interested in that. Sure. All right, Steve Langford, I appreciate you coming in and sharing your story on my podcast. We will look for you on CBS Two here in New York. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>